this morning is first from Psalm 110, uh, our Old Testament reading, Psalm 110. Let's give our full attention to God's holy word. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your power shall, uh, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. The psalm there expressing, uh, looking forward to Christ's reign when, when Christ ascends to his Father and is seated on the throne, the Son of David and the Son of God, ruling and reigning over all things, ruling over his church and defeating all his and their enemies. And let's turn now to John 14, verses 25 through 31, our New Testament reading here, which again uh, it speaks of Christ ascending pouring out his spirit to bless his church as as the king of the church. So John 14, verses 25 through 31. Let's give our full attention to God's holy word. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Let's pray together. Father, once again we turn to you, looking to you to bless your word to us, that by your Spirit you would accomplish your purpose for us in your word, by your word. We pray that we would hear with faith that by your spirit, you would do us good by your word. It's for Christ's sake we ask these things. Amen. In 1875, um, the Reverend Edward Bickerstiff, Bishop of Exeter, uh, wrote a hymn. And uh, it was wrestling with this question, how can we have peace in a world like this, a world that's so filled with, so tortured by sin and the effects of sin? And, and these, are the, these are some lines from his hymn. He says this, Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers, peace within. Peace Perfect peace with sorrows raging round on Jesus' bosom, not but calm is found. Peace, perfect peace, our future all unknown. 
Jesus we know. And He is on the throne. Peace. Perfect peace. Death shadowing us and ours. Jesus has vanquished death and all its powers. He's wrestling with that question, but He's finding the answer, isn't He? Uh, As Christ has promised to give peace. I think this resonates with us. We all have this question at one time or another. We've had it. We have it. Or we will have it. How can we have peace in a world like this? Well, it's because of who our Lord Jesus is for us. This is the same question the disciples are, are, are asking in the upper room here in John 14, as we've been studying together. And Jesus' answer for them is, is the same as the answer that Him gives. The disciples here in the upper room are full of anxiety. They're, they're on the verge of panic. Jesus is leaving. Their hearts are troubled. Jesus knows these things, and so He speaks words of comfort and courage throughout this chapter, John 14. And and we see Him here as as the great physician at work. He's diagnosed their heart trouble, a lack of peace and comfort. They're terrified of what's about to happen. And He's he's here, the great physician, diagnosed their, their their, their spiritual heart trouble, and now He's applying the remedy the various aspects of this remedy. He's, he's told them this, let not your heart be troubled because of who I am. Let not your heart be troubled because of, because of uh, uh, the helper that I'm going to send to you. Let not your heart be troubled because I will hear your prayers. Let not your heart be troubled because, because you will have union with me, a sweeter, better, closer fellowship, friendship with me than you've had on earth. Because of my spirit. Let not your heart be troubled, because, because when I go to my Father, I'm going to send the Spirit, and the triune God is going to make his home with you. Let not your heart be troubled, finally, because I'm giving you my peace. He tells his disciples here at the end of this chapter I give you the peace that's found in me, the only peace that you can have now and forever that no circumstances can touch. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That Jesus gives us this peace that nothing else can touch. The question then, as we start, is, well, how do we get it? Jesus promises it. It sounds wonderful. How do we get it? And that's our first heading, our first point this morning. The Spirit sent in verses 25 through 26. Let me read those verses again. These things I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So Jesus here once again is promising the Holy Spirit. He's saying, this is the means to the peace that I'm leaving with you. It's that you have the Spirit. So he's promising the Holy Spirit to them once again. And he does two things. He reminds us of who the Spirit is, and he teaches us about how the Spirit works. So he promises the Spirit, reminds us of who he is, and teaches us about how the Spirit works. Who is this Holy Spirit that Jesus promises to send? Well, verse 26, he calls him the helper. The Greek word there is parakletos. We, we hear the English sometimes as paraclete. It means a, a helper, a friend, a counselor, an, an advocate, someone who has wisdom and know-how and skill and can give us that support that we need. It's a teacher, someone who know, knows more than we do and can, and can equip us, therefore. 
He gives us the Holy Spirit. And he calls him, earlier in John 14, he calls him another helper. Saying that, that I, Christ, am, am your helper, your friend, your teacher, your counselor, and I'm going away. I'm giving you another helper, just like me. So there's this, there's this close identification, right, between the Spirit and Christ. Last, last week we looked at this as well. He, he, says, he says, the Spirit will come to you, and he says, I will come to you almost interchangeably. So the Spirit, as we've said, is no second-class substitute for Christ. He comes and he gives us the fullness of the risen Lord Jesus and all that is in Christ. So Jesus continues to point our attention to the Holy Spirit. He does this over and over in this chapter. As he's giving his disciples comfort here, he points us over and over to the Holy Spirit. All these benefits he's promising come through the Spirit, he says. Why does Christ keep coming back? Why is he hammering this point so hard? Well, it's because we, we have no advantage whatsoever from Christ if we don't have the Holy Spirit. If Christ doesn't send the Spirit, there's no salvation for anyone. Christ accomplishes Salvation, but that salvation must be applied, and that's what he sends the Spirit to do, to take that and apply it. So, if Jesus doesn't send the Spirit, we get no benefit from him. Jesus is promising his disciples here peace. But we don't get that peace apart from the Spirit. Right? Jesus doesn't, doesn't uh, uh, just kind of give that peace. He doesn't, it's not like a gift that he wraps up, sends in the mail, and we get it. No, that peace comes from what? It's, it's, it's from Christ, knowing Christ, having fellowship, union with Christ. How do we get that? Well, by having the Spirit unite us to Christ. This is the Spirit's work, uniting us to Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson describes this uh, this sending of the Spirit here with, with these words. He says this, The disciples feared they would know less of Christ, that their intimacy with Christ would come to an end when he departed from them. Now he taught them that in fact they would know him better and understand more about him and their relationship with him. From the Spirit, the disciples learned they are in Christ and Christ also dwells in them. Rather than losing him, they will gain him in a more intimate way. This is what the Spirit does. He unites us to Christ, gives us all the benefits that are ours in Christ, including the peace that Jesus is promising here. So that's why Jesus reminds his disciples of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit's work is. But what is this work of the Spirit uniting us to Christ? What does this look like practically? How does, how does this work out practically? That's where the verses here, 25 and 26, really focus their attention. Jesus tells us here in these verses that the Spirit will teach the disciples everything they need to know. He'll, he'll bring to their remembrance everything he's said to them. Jesus is speaking in a unique way to his disciples there in the upper room. They're, they're going to have a unique role to play. The apostles, right, are, are the foundation of the early church built on Christ. They're, they're going to be responsible for communicating to people exactly what Jesus said, exactly what he did, exactly who he was. They're going to, um, some of them, many of them, write the New Testament under the Holy Spirit's influence. They're going to oversee others whom the Holy Spirit will use to write the New Testament. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to equip you by my Spirit to remember everything I've said as you lay, the, lay down the foundation 
uh, in that first generation of the church. But he's not just speaking there, I think, to the disciples when he promises them this. He's also speaking to the whole church, every generation of the church, including us. He's, he's saying this, that, that by, by uh, the Spirit of Christ, I will teach you my word. That, that this is what the Spirit will do. This is how he works. He will take the word of Christ and teach it to us. This is how the Holy Spirit always works. It's always with the Word, by the Word. The Spirit is the one who takes that Word and applies it to us. So if if the Word is like the bread of life, right? The Spirit is the one who feeds it to us. If the the Word is is like we say, the sword that's sharper than any two-edged sword, the Spirit is the one who wields that sword masterfully in us. So if we want to know Christ... And if we want the Holy Spirit working powerfully in our lives, what do we need? We need the Word of Christ. This is how the Spirit works. So we have to go to God's Word and pray the Spirit would wield it in our hearts. We'll never know Christ deeply or the work of the uh, Spirit uh, powerfully in us apart from the Word of Christ. We must know that Word, be devoted to His Word. Are we devoted to the Word? Of Christ. If you are, Jesus says, here's the promise, you will know my peace. This is our second point, peace given. So he says, I'm sending the Spirit to teach you my word. The result, you'll have my peace. Jesus puts these two ideas back to back. I'm sending the Spirit to minister my word to you, therefore you will know peace. So the peace that Christ gives is the result of the Spirit Christ sends to work Christ's Word into our hearts. What is this peace that Jesus is promising here? He describes it like this in verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Peace um, especially for the Jews in, in their Old Testament context, um, which is the context that Jesus and the disciples are living in. They're living in with, with that mindset, the mindset of, of the Old Testament Scriptures. Peace meant not just the absence of conflict, um, not, just a, not just like a ceasefire, but, but wholeness, well-being, the fullest uh, possible blessing. It didn't just mean that the war was over. It meant that, that you, your, your nation was thriving, your family was thriving. It meant you were secure in the promised land. And all that that meant, a full harvest, good health, happy relationships. Um, the nation was thriving when it was at peace. That's, that's what peace was. But it wasn't just these horizontal blessings. It was fundamentally rooted in, sourced in God and his relationship with the people. The peace that mattered most, of course, is peace with God. I mean, everything depends on this in the Old Testament. You have peace with God and these other blessings come according to his covenant. You don't have peace with God and and you don't have any of these other things. Think of those words and the blessing that God has the the priests in the Old Testament place on the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's the climax of the covenant blessing. Peace with God. No other peace matters if we don't have peace with Him. 
If your sin is unforgiven and you're an enemy with God, then you don't have peace with Him. And, and there's no earthly peace or earthly blessing that can, that can uh, get you out of the wrath of God. So when Jesus says to His disciples here, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He's saying, I am your covenant Lord. And I have come to place my blessing on you and give you peace with me. He's the great high priest and the Lamb of God who has come to be the sacrifice and come to offer the sacrifice once for all for our sins that we might have peace with God. He comes and lays down His life for our sakes. He becomes uh, a sin for us, Paul will write, and suffers all the wrath of God so that we can have peace with God. This most fundamental need that we have. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm going to accomplish this peace for you in myself. But, but we don't just need that done outside of us. We need it applied to us. And we need it to impact, influence us. Give us a sense of peace. That's what Christ wants for his disciples here. He's not just saying for them that I have, I have accomplished your peace, a peace with God for you. He's saying, rest in it. Have that impact your life. So he says in the rest of verse 27, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's, he's saying, if you have peace with God through me, whatever else happens, you don't need to fear. You can rest secure. How does this work? How does it work that if we have peace with God, then, then we can rest secure and, and not be stirred up and flustered and, and, and uh, shaken by the storms of life? Well, this, I think, is what Christ is saying. This is the most fundamental thing. This peace with God is the most fundamental thing. And whatever else happens, nothing can change your peace with God if you're trusting in Christ. You have forgiveness of sins, a record of righteousness, acceptance before God. You've been acquitted in the court of heaven. There's no, there's no better uh, comfort, no more solid comfort than this. Uh, there's an illustration as trying to think of a, 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 an illustration that would, that would uh, make this point. J. Gresham Machen, the uh, founder of the OPC, founder of Westminster Seminary, back in 1937, he's 55 years old, he's, he's uh, the, the, the fledgling seminary he founded is on spring break, so he goes from Philadelphia out to North Dakota um, to strengthen the churches there, encourage, encourage some of the churches there. And... Um, He's, he's worn out. He's tired as he goes to do it. One of his colleagues said at the time he was dead tired. And out there he's overworking himself and he catches pneumonia and uh, he's on his deathbed. New Year's Day, 1937. And um, his last recorded words are a telegram that he sent to his friend John Murray just before he died. He said this, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. The active obedience of Christ. That perfect record of righteousness. Peace with God was like, a, was like a, a pillow he could lay his head on as he was preparing to die. Right? No other comfort matters when you're facing your, your, your death because, because in death you are on the threshold of the eternal courtroom 
your eternal uh, destiny is about to be is about to be set forever. You're going to go through and, and God is either going to send you to heaven or hell. Here's, here's our comfort. I have peace with God. I know what the verdict is because I'm in Christ and the verdict is justified. Peace with God. Whatever else happens uh, in my life between now and eternity, I have peace with God. That is my eternal destiny. Peace with Him. It's precious, precious comfort here. And loved ones, we all want this peace. This uh, peace with God objectively, this peace of God in ourselves, uh, subjectively the experience of it, knowing, uh, knowing that sense of, of confidence and rest uh, in, in knowing that we have peace with God. And, and peace is what we were made for, to have wholeness in our relationship with God. But where, where, where are we looking for it? Jesus calls us here to find it only in himself. And uh, he makes a contrast here between the peace he gives and what the world gives. He says to his disciples, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. He's setting up this contrast. The world gives counterfeit peace. And that counterfeit peace ends up leading just to conflict. The world offers counterfeit sources of peace and rest. It offers uh, 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 money or status or power or relationships, all these things. It's like, you'll find wholeness and blessing and prosperity and happiness in these things. But Jesus is saying, don't listen to the world say that because it's a counterfeit, it's a fake of the peace that I can give. It won't hold up in the end. Tim Keller Puts it this way, he says, there's no amount of money, power, planning that can prevent bereavement, illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. He's saying there's no peace that this world can offer you that will hold up. It's only peace with God, wholeness with Him that will hold. So Jesus says, Pursue the peace that is found in me. Brothers and sisters, don't take your troubled heart to the world. The world wants us to do that. It says, here's here's all these sources of peace. And we're tempted, right, when we're anxious and troubled to take our hearts to those counterfeits. Jesus says, they're not good enough. They won't hold up. Bring your troubled heart to me and find uh, find, uh, comfort and, and courage and peace in me. There is no circumstance that can, that can rend a heart out of Christ's hands and take away our peace with God. Well, at this point, Christ has been speaking much of comfort and peace. And no doubt, they're feeling somewhat reassured. But Jesus continues. He doubles down. He, he keeps on going here. He doesn't want them just temporarily soothed and comforted. He wants this uh, to be drilled into them. He wants this to go down to their bones, that they have peace with God. So he piles on reasons for peace as he goes on uh, in the rest of our text this morning. And this is our third point, mission accomplished. Jesus here focusing on the mission that he is about to accomplish and how that also 
is a source of peace and comfort for us. So verses 28 to 31, Jesus tells us here that we should be at peace knowing that He is finishing the mission His Father has given Him. He points to two parts of this mission that He has. First, He points to His ascension. His ascension to His Father, and then He points to His power over Satan. First, His ascension to His Father. In verse 28, He says, You have heard Me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. What is Jesus doing here? He's pointing to the very thing that the disciples are so anxious about, his leaving, and he's saying, this should make you feel great comfort. Why? Well, first, because because I'm leaving in order that I might come to you through the Holy Spirit, that you might know me better than you've known me even in this life. The Holy Spirit means closer communion with Christ than the disciples had when Christ was on earth. So Jesus says, I'm going away and coming back to you. Take comfort in my going because my going is what is about to mean my coming to you through the Spirit. Second thing Jesus says we should take comfort in this aspect of his going away. So what we should rejoice about is that it means he's going to his Father. And he reminds us here, he says, uh, the Father, verse 28, is greater than I am. Now there's a, there's a verse that's caused trouble and confusion, right? What does Jesus mean when he says, the Father is greater than I? And how does that bring the disciples comfort? How does it bring us comfort in his departure? Well, it's clear from John's Gospel that when Jesus says, um, uh, I'm, the Father is greater than I, it's, it's clear through the rest of John's Gospel and the rest of the whole New Testament that at every point Jesus sees himself as equal with the Father. John's Gospel begins, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. No doubt there, Jesus is equal with the Father. John 5.18, He was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So how is it that Jesus then can say here, the Father is greater than I? Well, the answer is that Christ is one divine person with two distinct natures. And that you can say something about his divine nature, about his whole person. And you can say something that's true of his human nature about his whole person. And so he can can say in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. He can say, I am equal with the Father. That's not true of his human nature. It's true of his divine nature. But you can say it about his whole person. You can also say things about him like he does here. The Father is greater than I. That's true of his human nature as he's he's humbled himself and taken on flesh in the incarnation. So you can say it about his whole person. What does this mean for our peace, our comfort, As he says this here, Jesus is emphasizing that he is finishing the mission God gave him to do. His mission was to lower himself down, to humble himself, become a servant, as Philippians 2 tells us. So he takes on our nature, he comes to this earth, he suffers, he's made the lowest of the low, the servant of all. His whole life has been a life of humiliation and suffering. That's what he's saying when he's saying, the Father is greater than I. I've taken on flesh. I've been made low. 
But he says, now I'm going to my Father. I'm about to be raised up in glory, seated on the throne. The coronation ceremony is about to happen. He's, he's going to reign as the King over all things. That's, he, he's, he's about to cross the finish line. He's about to finish his fight. So he wants the disciples to rejoice in that, and it's a great source of comfort and joy. Because this is what, this is what Israel has been longing for and waiting for for generations, for the son of David to come and gain his throne again and rule again. And that's what's about to happen. The son of David is about to finish his humiliation, enter his reward, and reign as king. Jesus says, take comfort. I am being enthroned at my father's right hand to reign in victory over everything. So he says, don't fear my going away. It means I've finished the work God gave me to do and I'm seated on the throne in glory. The second source of comfort Jesus points to here is his victory over Satan. In verses 29 to 31, he is making, making this point to his disciples. He's saying, even though you're about to see me killed, even though the powers of darkness are going to look like they've won, they haven't won. I have. I'm in control. I'm not Satan's slave. I'm serving my Father. I'm fulfilling my mission. That's what he's reminding his disciples here. It's what he's reminding us here. In verse 29, he tells his disciples that uh, uh, he's telling this to them ahead of time so they know that he's in control, that Satan's not in control, he's in control. And so that they'll trust him when it happens. He says, now I've told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. He's saying, everything that's about to happen is not an accident. It's not something I didn't expect. It's not something I didn't plan. No, no, every detail is according to God's sovereign will, according to my purpose. Every, every lash of the whip I know about, it's according to plan. So that even as the disciples panic and scatter, it's according to plan. Even as Peter denies him, Jesus says, it's just like I said it would happen. The disciples are supposed to see all these things happening. And remember, this is as he promised. Even now, he's in control. Christ goes on. He builds on this in verses 30 to 31. He says, the ruler of this world is coming. Satan is coming. The hour of darkness is coming. But what does Jesus say? He has no claim on me. Really, Christ, Jesus, when you're nailed to the cross, when we see you, when we see you uh, taken off the cross and buried in the tomb, when we, the disciples that remain, this tiny remnant, are cowering together, hiding in fear of our lives, Satan has no claim on you. He has no power over you. He, he, he's not in charge at that moment. Jesus says, no. I do as the Father has commanded me. Those are glorious, glorious words. Jesus does nothing because it's Satan's will. He is doing what the Father commanded him to do. In the background of those words stands Adam in the Garden of Eden. Our first covenant had Adam. Satan comes to Adam in the garden where Adam is sinless and has everything he could want to enjoy. Satan comes and he tempts him and, 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 and Adam falls into sin. Satan gets a claim on Adam. 
Adam doesn't do what the Father commands. He obeys Satan instead of the Father. But here we have the second Adam. And how much greater he is. Even to his death, even to the greatest sacrifice of himself, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. This is such a glorious hope. Jesus has obeyed his Father unflinchingly through the deepest sacrifice because he loves the Father. He's saying to us, though what is about to happen will look like defeat, it is my hour of victory. I am finishing my mission of loving and obeying my Father so that you can have that record of righteousness and have peace with God. I'm finishing my mission to overthrow the power of Satan. It's going to be done in just a few hours, just a few days. I'll be risen from the dead. What a word of comfort. Our King is risen. He's finished His work. There's no circumstances that can change this. Now, there are horrific circumstances, terrible circumstances that we go through. Maybe you're in the midst of something excruciating now. Maybe you can think of a time you were, or or you can see something coming. But none of these things, no matter how terrible they are, can shake Christ's throne or undo what He has done. And therefore, they cannot take away the peace that Christ gives His church. We began this sermon with a quote from one hymn. I'd like to end it now with a quote from another. This one is is better known, probably, and the story that goes with it is too. It's by Horatio Spafford. He was a friend, a supporter of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. In 1871, Great Chicago Fire happens, and it destroys pretty much everything Spafford has been investing in, his, his wealth. Two years later, his wife and his four daughters are going across the Atlantic for, uh, for some time away uh, for a vacation. He's going to be joining them soon after, but, but on the way across the Atlantic, another ship rams into theirs, and uh, 226 people die, including all Spafford's daughters, all four of his daughters. His wife alone survived. Spafford then sails across uh, shortly after to meet his wife, and on the voyage he writes these words, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's the peace Christ gives, which no circumstances can touch. Brothers and sisters, do you know Christ and have this peace? The world can't give us this. It only gives counterfeits. Seek Christ. Take your troubled heart to Christ. Set your mind and your will and your affections and all you are to know Christ. By His Word, by His Spirit, even as He's promised, He will give you peace. Amen. Let's pray.